welcome back to the second episode of the Second Renaissance podcast, where I sit down with artist, sculptor, and interior designer Mika Utson Popov. I'm Anders Sulman Nilsson, global futurist, author, and the co creator of Adobe CQ, the intelligence test for your creative intelligence. In this interview, in this deep and meaningful, dare I say, with artist and good friend of mine, Mika Utson Popov, we discuss how growing up in a creative family has shaped his creative artistry and expression. We talk about how both sides of his family, both the Popov and the Utsons, have given him both architectural know-how, but also given him a liberty to really explore and give expression to his unique Danish-Australian point of view, how the Danish noir combined with the light in the northern beaches of Sydney has translated into him becoming a brand ambassador and an artist in residence for RM Williams building and co-contributing to their flagship store in New York. And just the importance of the liberty of growing up in a creative setting has set him free from some of the constraints of traditional society. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did, and I give you Mika Utson Popov. Welcome to our home. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's always funny when you know you live on the other side of the world, and this is something we'll come back. To, through, through our conversation today. Uh, I'm Swedish originally, live in Australia, and the way we met was that I was trying to keep my Swedish tradition alive by yeah. speaking <laughs> Swedish to my son, and I could notice, you know, down at Avalon shops, a gentleman standing 50 meters away heard me speaking uh, Scandinavian uh, to the next generation. So welcome onto the show, Mika Utsumpopo. You were that you were that person yeah. and then you initiated a conversation. So Yeah. Thank you, Anders. I'm glad I did. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been really a really nice new new acquaintance up here on, on, on the northern beaches. And uh, I know you know from 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 meeting with you and us having lunch up here in at Girdlers in in Clareville and talking about all things Scandinavian and Australian and the sort of duality mm. that as an artist, as a very accomplished artist, um, that that sort of duality has, has sort of shaped you in, 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 in many ways. Um, I'm curious, you know, Australia, <clears throat> you know, you've got the freshness of the northern beaches, then there's the Danish noir. Mm. Uh, how has that shaped the artist that is Mika Utsun Popov? Um yeah, it's, a, it's a, a very fundamental part of who I am and it's a, a sort of an ongoing dialogue with myself about what does it actually mean and, and I think in a sense I've come to realise that it's a continuum. It's, it's not something that ever seems to settle completely. I think I'm, I made the joke that I'm more Australian in Denmark and I'm more Danish in Australia and, and you sort of... I guess over the years I've realised that the benefit of having that is a constant shift of perspective you never get settled or locked into uh, too much of a um, one viewpoint that you tend to go stagnant with and also you're able to if you remain open to sort of pull the best of all of those aspects out of what you're doing and I know that 
you know, living in, there's a t tendency probably sometimes to long for a place when you're not there and forgetting that there are negatives as well. So you tend to pluck out all the good stuff. And um, I think I'm beginning to, with the ability to have a bit of hindsight now, is I can look back and really appreciate the benefits and all of the positives that each place feeds. And they, they, they eventually become an amalgam of things that happen. Mm. I know. I know. One of the things that w when I've been, you know, reading up on on your on your artwork and 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 your collaborations with 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 architects and your your creation of spaces, be that one of the the, the fascinating um, stories I read about was just how you use you know use the land and the history of, of a place like in Wollongong where you created. Uh, excuse my. Catalan as well, Poble. Yes, uh, a place, a retiree. Yes, village. Yes, but you really, you really focused on how you tap into the place and the materials and the history to create connection and conversation. Yes, for, for people. And again, I guess I'm I'm curious to see how both Australia <clears throat> and Denmark has 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 shaped the way that you facilitate conversation. Yeah, and. Interestingly enough that you bring that project up because that project has a very um, clear uh, sort of identifying character and I guess in a sense concept coming out of Spain, which is another place that I've lived in a lot in my life and, and feel incredibly connected to. And as much as I try to tie projects into a local story and a, a local sense of, of place and context of where the place that this object or these intersections or conversations are going to start. In this case, um, I, I guess I, it's a number of things. You, you pull different components. So Wollongong obviously is a steel, uh, has a history of this steel works and people who've worked there. So the material sort of became part of that dialogue. But then the idea of trying to create a, with the architects who were trying to create a, a more of a social space so to reduce the loneliness of retirement, I immediately pull back to, to the people that I've met in Spain where older people gather in the square and meet and that's their way of socialising and interaction, interacting with community. So you're not isolated. And so the idea was to create that and that's where the word pobla comes from, which is Catalan for village. And so I think... What happens is when you start a conversation with an architect or a client, what I like about it is that you are immediately confined. You've got a set of parameters that start narrowing down your vision and where you can go. And then it's up to you as an artist to pull out the best that you can possibly do to get into that direction and narrow it down to the exact point of contact with context or narrative or intention and from my perspective having had so much background with architecture I mean I think more than half of my family are architects so it's kind of a special dialogue in our house and having grown up in the forest in in in, in Denmark which are these very tall uh, beech tree spaces so there's a sense of spatial connection already in that uh, and tying that space to place and so when I start working with architects it's often about what are their intentions what do they want the space to do how do they want to engage with the user and then how can I help 
as an artist to kind of almost concentrate that experience to a, I guess, a more of a visceral or emotional experience than an intellectual one. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by that, you know, idea and, you know, we've heard certainly even through COVID, right, the, mm. that it's been a, you know, type of senicide because it's been over-indexing for, for, you know, the elderly, um, you know, yes. some of the most vulnerable parts of our society and, you know, retirement villages or aged care yes. centers. Um, and, you know, there's been this sort of a, I guess, a, a more extreme version of loneliness when people mm. have been cut off now, not being able to visit their, you know, their elderly parents, et cetera, if mm. they are in a either retirement village or an aged care center. So I'm fascinated just to how you think about creating spaces that, you know, facilitate conversations, uh, what, you know, and dialogue and, and human connection. Um, Certainly, you know, in Wollongong, you guys have done mm. that. Are there, are there other examples where you think, you know, art and, and design has had a fundamental, you know, role to play in, in driving human connection? I think um, there's obviously art is as broad as, and I, when I say art, it's, it's, um, it's hard to sort of isolate it to one thing. I guess you could say sculpture or painting or writing or music. I mean, there's a broad spectrum of connectivity, but it's also as broad as architecture can be. You know, you can have factory construction or industry or private housing. They're all very different um, spaces. But I guess <clears throat> for me, one of the important things that I think in the ongoing boom of construction that we've had over the last 20 years there's been a tendency to sort of grow bigger and bigger and bigger and I don't necessarily agree that that helps the human connectivity because I'm I guess in a traditionalist in that sense that I really do believe that the human scale has a lot to play with how we interact and and connect with spaces and experiences and so one of the things that I try to do with my work is I actually try to embed it into the architecture or be part of almost to the point where you won't notice it it's simply part or an extension of and sometimes people um, get confused with it, it's difficult because you're, you're crossing into a boundary where architecture and art start to fuse so who did what and where and I've had elements where I've added something to the architecture that later is perceived as architecture and the art is almost gone in there but the important thing is that the art is making connection, that it's tying in. And it, I think uh, um, I think one of those experiences that I've really tied me to that was um, growing up with the Museum Louisiana in Humlebeck, which is north of Copenhagen, mm. which if we're going to talk about significant intersections of art, I think for me that's probably one of the most significant educators in how art can exist on a social basis it's it's not a place that people come to visit uniquely for the art they come for the entire experience you have a garden there that is uh, interconnected with the architecture and the art the boundaries are very fluid and very loose when you're walking inside the building you have glass on either side so you're not sure where the garden ends or the building finishes and where the art which is inside and outside in, in the same sentence. 
that space has done more to ease children into the dialogue of art and understanding of art than anything else that I know. And I love that that has that, in a sense, humbleness of scale where everything is very subdued, but very, very clear. Um, I think that's, that's an important aspect of where I think we can take art as a more social space uh, intended heritage rather than individual objects placed in as entities that you can pluck out and remove or place again. It's mm. a long answer, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 all good. So I'm, I'm curious, I mean, uh, we, we find ourselves here in, in, in the middle of nature on the far northern beaches of, of, of Sydney. Um, as, an, as an artist, what, what is it that sort of drew you to choosing, most likely very deliberately, this part of the world around Avalon and, and mm. Pittwater and sort of a place where, you know, the, the ocean meets karma waters on, mm. on, on pit water is, is there a, is there a family history in this particular area mm. or what what drove you to this area as an artist and I, as a human I, well i i um i first came up here as i mentioned to you in private conversations that um i my father's australian or he's russian immigrant who grew up in australia um and when he so this is the Popov part of yes, the so surname. Yes, Alex Popov, yeah. the architect. And, and he, he grew up, I think, in Taramara and in the bush there and then moved to Denmark and married my mother and we grew up there. And then I think when I was about 11 or 12, he moved back here. And I followed at the age of 17 and my father had rented a house at Clevel Beach. And I lived here through the last years of high school and really made a connection with the nature here it was really the natural space here which was so incredibly different from where I grew up really it, it, to the point where I, I was overwhelmed and couldn't quite understand it but thrived in it and then when I moved back to Australia again in uh, 2004 my wife at the time uh, when we met was living in Bronte which is a space I hadn't encountered and enjoyed very much because it's it's dynamic, it's near the city, you're in the middle of these incredible beaches. And then as we had children, I, we both felt a need to be more in connection with the natural environment. And, and Kirsty had spent quite a lot of time up here as a young student. And so we felt this was a place that we'd like to be. And coming up here, I think, as, as you probably found too, there's an element of the Australian landscape that's so wildly different to the European landscape. You, in Sweden, your landscapes are more wild, but in Denmark, there's a subduedness to it in that it is, it is um, maintained by us, whereas here, we sort of... I like to say that we're here on nature's premises, whereas in Europe, nature's there on our premises you feel very small here and you really feel and especially where the river meets the ocean and that whole dynamic that you have in this incredible national park of Kuringan Chase is that you really feel a sense of time this enormous enormity that sort of changes in front of you that you have very little ability to change or make impact on and I, I really like that I've grown to like that sort of rawness of the landscape here mm. 
And 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 so the connection and the and the sort of the the story of Mika Utsun Popov and the connection with Australia, though, from what I understand, begins with the Sydney Opera House, that iconic, yes. you know, piece of architecture <clears throat> that everyone around the world now knows about, and, mm. and your and your grandfather winning the uh, the competition to to design it. Yes, um, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't be here if you hadn't won that competition. Um, my 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 mother's family. So Lynn is the son of Jan, and they moved out here for the opera house. Um, they won the competition. They started construction and design in Denmark, and then once it sort of got underway, they they moved here and they actually moved to Pittwater, oddly enough, of, of, um, and bought a block of land in Bayview, and in, very much intended to stay in Australia and uh, build a house and that was going to be their future here and then because of all the controversy and the problems that uh, were involved they left and my mother was I think 17 or 18 when she left so it's a very strong sort of um, emotional period for her had made a lot of friends made a lot of connections and never quite lost that contact and there were a lot of Australians who left Australia in that period 1960 67, 68, um, Robert Hughes and um, my godfather Martin Sharp and my dad, they all moved to London at that period and so my dad moved to, to Denmark and that sort of, I guess, tied that whole connection back to here eventually. And then you were born early 70s? In, yes, in, I was born in, in Denmark in 1971 yeah. and uh, grew up in the same forest that my grandparents had grown, had spent well my mum my grandfather grew up there and then moved back there and we to have family and when they won the opera house they were living in that forest so we grew up in that same forest which is very small mm. uh, there weren't many people there when when I was born we were probably a community of three four hundred people and it's since grown quite a lot so, so I'm curious I mean as, as an artist and now you collaborate closely with um, with architects um, sort of you know embedded with architecture quite closely from mm. i know you're also mm. a sculptor um but i'm just curious just to see you know gr growing up ha you know as, as, a, as a young child um with a with a mother who's a ceramicist is well, she's a designer and artist and, yeah. and a, 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 again a broad i mean she's done murals in porcelain porcelain design for royal copenhagen tapestries yeah. um Glassware, you name it. Uh, it must be. I mean, must be fascinating conversations around the you know the <laughs> dinner table, and you must have soaked up all this you know creativity from yes. you know b b both maternal and paternal si yes. sides of the family. Yes. And it sounds like you also spent in time in in Mallorca with yes. your grandparents as well. What, what you know? What did you? What did you learn, or what did you sort of soak up just by that sort of immersive experience from from you know? from a family heritage and, and a, I guess a creative uh, perspective. Um, it's interesting because I have, I, I've been asked it before, so it's something I do think about. It's, you know, you grow up in something and you don't know anything else really. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess one of the biggest things is that our family has always grown up with the idea that art is something you live. It's not necessarily a career. It's just how you live. And 
So our conversations were around art, but it was around um, how, you know, you walk through the forest. It's how, how does the light fall? How do things, how do we experience spaces? How do we translate it into a material? Um, I think <clears throat> I was very, very lucky to grow up in a place where those conversations could run very freely. And I think in the sense that isolation that we had of living in the forest in a small community meant that there was very little distraction from that. Um, and fulfilling your own kind of language and allowing that to flow very freely. And I, you know, we, like I, you said, we, we, we visited Spain a lot and, I, and in Australia, we, I think we were coming here on a sort of regular basis once every year or two years to visit family. So with that an incredible stability of being up in this forest that was our playground and then this very dramatic shift into other places which for me was more than anything about the shift in light. Um, so yeah, I think just always being encouraged to, to follow your bliss in a sense, follow your language, follow your instincts around these things and being very allowing them, that nature to be raw in yourself. I mean, it's yeah. It sounds like there's almost almost this sort of you know beautiful permission to mm. to explore and to be free and find that sort of you know unique yes. unique spark and unique authentic self in, in all of that. Yes, I, I think I think that's probably a very 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 good point. Um, it's interesting because. I remember conversations with my grandfather about what to do with my life and when you sort of finish high school and I wasn't ever very clear about what I wanted to do because I was interested in everything. I've always had this curiosity about everything. My friends have been everything from ballet dancers to carpenters and uh, architects and, you know, I haven't had a, a particular group that I stuck with. And we we talked about this that I did a lot of drawing. I obviously thought about architecture because everything in our space was architectural and I, I loved space. And I remember him sort of very calmly in one day sitting me down and saying, look, you just start somewhere and then you remain open and you start finding that things lead you to a direction. And once you see where you're headed, you just go with it and you don't question it. And you know, I remember questioning it once because you have a lot of doubt, obviously, about things at some point. And say, well, then go do something else. Well, I don't want to do anything else. Well, then that's what you need to just keep doing and stop asking yourself whether it's the right thing. And I think that's been a huge help is that even when things have been difficult, art is inherently very challenging on an economic scale. Uh, it's very up and down. Uh, for most artists, it's incredibly hard to make it work. Very small proportion of artists make a lot of money. Um, but that's never been a question. It's always been, but are you happy doing what you're doing? Mm. How can you best do what you do? Is to just be yourself. That's, a, that's an enormous gift to be given when you're young. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've read stories and I mean, <clears> I'm... <throat> I married to a wonderful woman and, and, and creative and, you know, so we think about this a lot in terms of how we, how we you know, parent mm. our son Lucian and so that he can tap into his, his creativity and probably both her and I feel a little bit like maybe our parents steered us in a little bit more sort of traditional 
traditional paths and notwithstanding that I guess you know even though you know my parents were sort of saying hey you should become you know a, a doctor or a lawyer or or a psychologist mm. and you know and and Nicole's parents gave her different advice um you know she ended up as a fashion designer and as a as a as a manufacturer of swimwear and resort wear and working at you know Yves Saint Laurent yes. in, in Paris and she's she's very creative but she sort of had to find her own way there and luckily she was able to connect with that sort of creative spark and I end up as a as a futurist mm. of all all things you know yes. a, a, a made up profession um so despite actually studying law for a little while but I think I'm I'm always super curious to to find you know find people who maybe from the beginning have been given that permission and whether that's you know whether that's a blessing or maybe even sometimes a curse you know whether it can be yeah. a challenging thing yeah. to kind of so you, you know you can be whatever and you know you want and just, yeah it's yeah, yeah. I, I agree I think um, <clears throat> I think the real blessing or the real gift you can give your child is to trust that they they give them the trust to trust themselves to know that they will find out if they just really fully commit to finding and following their own instincts because I can put all my intentions and love into art into my my two children and say you know this is this is great you have the freedom you can be a sculptor you can do all this stuff but it might not be what they want to do they they may not have that interest they may not have that angle um so the best thing i can give them is to give them that freedom and show them a life of open interaction and curiosity and interest and um believe that they will find those answers if they trust themselves and I think you'll find too that you are where you're meant to be because of the choices that you've made one thing mm. has you know nothing that you've done has probably been a waste because it's informed where you are and how you see the world um, I like to think that all those jobs I did as a you know a waiter or a cook or a bartender and all that has fed something in me about how I communicate with people and when I work or how I perceive spaces with people. You know, I think all of that, we learn from everything. Mm. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious whether, you know, even in, in, and because you've got kids, is, is there any other sort of, you know, from a, from a creativity perspective? Because I, I, I always think about this. I'm like, you know, you know, which jobs will machines take over or what yes. will, you know, artificial <clears throat> intelligence do to, you know, which side of the brain, left or right, that will be more commoditized and which one will be prized um, in the future. And I tend to think that, you know, robotics and machine learning will probably influence and, and maybe duplicate the human brain a little bit more from a sort of a mathematical mm logical computational part of the brain and then i'm going but you know maybe this is the chance to i think there's been a lot of people over the years it's like that super tramp song the logical song yes you yes. know then they sent me away to become logical practical cynical a vegetable um now if you're an accountant listening to this podcast don't don't be offended right so um but i think that very abstract yeah exactly so I think there's, but there's been a lot of people that I know, you know, who have had that really strong parental guidance that, you know, go down this career path because it's safe. You'll make mm. good money. You'll mm. be able to service the mortgage. Mm. 
Mm. But they've lost that connectivity with, you know, who they are or their own creative expression. Because I think that creative expression can come in no matter what profession you actually mm. choose. Is, so they're, they're certainly creative accountants. You know, there's, yeah, there's a lot, lot of very creative, you know, <clears throat> med, you know medical professionals, etc. But, how, how, you know, no matter what profession you choose, whether it's more left brain or right brain, so mm. to speak, is there any advice you can give to parents in terms of just getting their kids to really tap into who they are? I think, um, look, I'm, I'm not in any way going to say I'm good at it, but um, I think sometimes stepping back and allowing the kids to show you the way a bit uh, is a really important aspect because it teaches the child that they're free to also explore and inform you and I think that leads to an element of discovery of their own. I have, I have a tendency to point out things to my kids a lot. Look at that sunset, look at that bird flying, look at that cloud, look at the light, you know. And sometimes you just need to let them take it in and process it and bring it to you in their way. Um, I, think, I think freedom is, is incredible. I'm, you, you probably have heard this too, that... A lot of us grew up in a period where there was an incredible uh, sort of, I think in Scandinavia anyway, it was a very naive period of, of, of not naive, but in a sense, uh, uh, childhood naivety is a, is a wrong word, romantic period where there was a lot of experimentation around childhood rearing, social structure, living together, which allowed children to live very, very freely. I mean, we never locked the door. We were always running around in the forest by ourselves and exploring, I was given an axe at age 10 to go out and build a cubby house. You know, there was this sort of trust. At what, at what stage were you given the axe? <laughs> uh, I was 10 okay. and my grandfather said, look, can you go and chop that birch tree down in the backyard for me? And so he showed me how to use it. And then he taught me how to use it in, to take the thickness for the ice because he didn't mm. want us to walk out on the ice and go through the ice. So it was, I guess it was a preemptive thing of saying, look, you're going to come into contact with these things mm. by yourself. You need to kind of know how it works. Um, I remember buying my kids a little Danish scout knife and giving it to them because of the same thing. But it's a different world. It is a different, um, it's a different structure. There's different ways of approaching the information that our children are accessing is very different. Um, I think you're in an incredibly interesting and difficult business of predicting because we, there are obviously aspects of predicting that are completely unknown. I mean, I don't think any of us expected the iPhone or expected the change that it created within how we experience and interact with the world and what it's actually allowed us to do as well. Um, I think one of the important things we can give our children in a world that is so broad, I mean, kids have information access. Teachers, for example, no longer are the holders of access, which means we're not, or, I mean, of information, sorry. We're not the holders of information that kids can get that. What we can be is the guides as to how to use that information, how to find their way through it and, and build on their own capacity to construct a future. Mm. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I would say it's not so much. I mean, it's not so much about 
pre- predicting the future because I don't, I don't believe anyone can no. do that. But it, <laughs> it is, you know, it is about, it's all about always sort of thinking and, 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 and preparing. Yes. I always say it's yes. like preparing for the future, even, even in terms of, you know, this crazy year of COVID, um, you know, the, 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 author who wrote the book the black swan you know yes oftentimes people said oh this pandemic is a you know it's a black swan event um <clears throat> nicholas taleb who wrote the book the black swan and coined coined the term or, or or modernized the term at least the idea being that you know up until australia was discovered all swans in europe right were white yes. so yes. something that was a white swan was just something that everyone accepted as yes. truth yes right? so um so Nicholas Taleb says, you know, don't use the metaphor of a black swan for the fact that you might have been unprepared for this pandemic. Mm. And, I th- and I think it's like it it's reminds us that it's, you know, it's quite confrontational, right? Yeah, <laughs> Just, yeah, yeah. you know, like, um, but it is confrontational. And at the same time, it's maybe a little bit of a wake up call that we, you know, as, as people, we always sort of need to prepare ourselves for, for what's next while yes. being, you know, very much sort of you know also just living in the moment and being you know being mindful of you know when you're out for walks in Kurungai Chase National Park actually you know yes even being mindful to our own you know intuitions to go oh look over there that bird Lucian or you know look over look over there arrow did you see that you know um so um I think yeah it's, it's a, a balance. It's, isn't yeah. It? I mean it is a balance and I guess I'm I'm guessing that part of what you must do is is also inform yourself as best as possible and try and decipher elements of each direction that things can take. It's not necessarily like you said predicting one event or two events because there's any number of outcomes but in a sense being aware of and in preparation of you are able to deal with them when they appear. Um, as opposed to not knowing at all. I think that's one of the aspects actually of living in Australia that's really interesting, this idea of having a fire season that you actually have to prepare for, for this oncoming event that may or may not happen, but it's very likely, and you prepare as best as you can, and yet you can't quite predict where or how or at what intensity this outcome. Um, and I think... It's one of the things I love about Australians is they have this incredible capacity for balancing this natural threat with living. They're very, mm. you know, they throw themselves in, and hopefully myself now included, we throw ourselves in this great ocean that has quite significant elements of danger with rips and waves and um, sharks and jellyfish and whatever there might be. And yet it's really about being aware that they are there and understanding what it is and then negotiating that balance. It's not throwing yourself frivolously out into it and it's not being fearful and staying back from it. And I think that's a very important way of moving into the future. I mean, all these elements that you, you, you're talking about now are sort of, you know, these like iconic ideas of, of, of Australia and, and, the, and the land and the nature here, mm. which is, sounds like it's had a, a huge, you know, a huge impact on, on, on your art and also has created some, you know, some opportunities too. And I always, I'm always, always kind of fascinated when, you know, when, when heritage brands that are you know, so quintessentially Australian and you're, you're a dual citizenship mm. now, I understand, or you're a dual citizen now, I understand, yes. 
but uh, you had this opportunity to to work very very closely with RM Williams, yes. very quintessential heritage Aussie brand, to work with them and to to really kind of represent through art. Mm their brand in, in, in New York. Can you tell us a little bit about that yeah, flagship store Yeah, it was story? a very interesting project because um, the initial reaction f- from me is, you know, do, do I want to work with a brand and what does that mean? And, you know, you're tying into something else. And, and the more I got to understand the brand, the more I like the idea of, of extending onto something that is so tied to an Australian identity, which inherently then ties back to landscape. Those boots come out of a necessity. It, it, it's, it's simply how can best to make something that's not going to break down in this incredibly harsh environment. And um, the original um, scope for the, or the sort of intention for the artwork was how can we represent Australian landscape in our store? Um, and so I, I really enjoyed the challenge of finding out how can we interact with a store and create an artwork that, that sort of somehow ties an entire country into the, the same uh, experience. And um, Iron Williams were really amazing in that they, they had no boundaries as to what we could do with it. They really let me kind of drive the artwork myself and the intention of that uh, in an element of trust, which is very important when you work with a client, is to have that trust that you can do something. Um, And so I think for me, this actually brings us back to what we're talking about with, with interacting with architects or other people. I think one of the gifts, uh, which we can tie back another step, growing up with my, my grandfather and having a, we grew up in a town that was a, originally a small um, forest area where there was logging, but there was also the shipyard was a major supplier of work in the area that we were in. My great-grandfather worked at the shipyard as a director. Um, and I remember going there with my grandfather and he talked about if you want, at this time I was thinking about becoming an industrial designer, and he said, look, you need to be able to look at a piece of steel and know whether which machine it's come out of. Go to the factory, go to the shipyard, look at how things are made, which machine does what, and what are the marks that tell you something about that that, um, production. Equally, you could say that about drawing. Um, When you draw with a pencil, your arc line is a certain diameter or radius because your hand only moves at a certain radius. If you extend that to a paintbrush, it's a much bigger stroke. If you work that into a stick with a you know, a meter long stick with a piece of charcoal and then all of a sudden that changes completely how you work. So what I've loved and what I love doing when I get the opportunity to work with commissioned work with other people's skills is I get to step out of my comfort zone and my knowledge base and work with people who have huge knowledge in their area and ask them questions that if I'm lucky they haven't asked before and together we can push into a direction that we find new answers or maybe even new questions and working with Iron Williams and going down to see their factory and actually see how these thing, boots are made hand by hand I mean I think there's something like a 140 different stations to make this one boot by hand it was extraordinary an extraordinary sort of vault of information around leather, around soles, around stitching, around threads, around strings, around every aspect of this. 
And so it's an opportunity for me to learn. And I think that's been one of the most, one of the biggest drivers in how I work is this desire to learn from other people. And so how did like just sort of seeing that embryonic, you know, emergence of, of the, you know, yes this you know beautiful piece of you know australian art which is the rm williams boot how did you translate that into you know selection of materials or 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 into this creative expression this artistic expression that came to symbolize the brand in in new york um the original uh idea i had was to cover the entire shop in hand-stitched leather i wanted to really bring the people who were in that production line into that store in America and represent their skill sets and their knowledge there. Um, we obviously due to the constraints of commercial, a commercial shop, you have to change that. So we had a wall, uh, we had two aspects to the, to, to the, to the artworks. We had a wall, which was a leather stitched wall, which had a landscape stitched into it um, to represent that um, RM Williams production of leather and stitching. Um, and then the other aspect was the sculptural element that I placed a, a large hand-cut um, sculpture, which ended up being cast in concrete, of trying to represent Australian landscape in an amalgam. So rather than representing one, I live by the coast, so I tend to think of Australia as this. Someone living in the desert has a very different idea of it than someone who lives um, in sand dunes or mountains they're all part of that same great landscape. So I tried to create something that was an amalgam of all those landscapes in, a, in this big sculptural element that's in the store. So that the first thing you experience as you come into the window or the door is this landscape. And it's the last thing you see when you walk out again. Yeah, cool. We might have to have a little Pinterest board in the show notes <laughs> to the show as well. Now we're ne- nearly into the, uh, to the end zone here, Mika. Um, I'm curious, this is not a history question no. to you, um, but when you hear the word renaissance, what, what, what images or person or artworks or feelings does it conjure up for you? I mean, you kind of go back to Italy immediately on an art, but for me, it's, it's this, when I think of the word, I think of this incredible energy of curiosity and commitment and um, conversations and uh, exploration. And I think all this incredible art that we got out of the last Renaissance, or the, the one that we sort of referred to as the Renaissance, is we're still feeding off that today. And it was really about exploring. I think modernism was probably another one in the post-war, World War II, um, an explosion of thinking around architecture, public space, um, design, people scale, production, everything came out of that incredibly tragic and horrific experience of destruction. And how do we build a new world? How do we build a better place? Can all of the things we do make people's lives better? And that, again, came down to asking questions and exploring Mm. we've had covid you know shaping the year that's 2020 and um oftentimes i hear as 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 a swedish national that you know particularly when i'm 
here in Australia or when I used to travel around the world that, you know, oh, one of the reasons you Swedes are so creative and, you know, you've got, you know, Scandinavian minimalism and you've got, you know, the Swedish or the Scandinavian noir and, mm. you know, great music, uh, sort of been punching above our weight in Scandinavia mm. creatively, I think, over the years. And, and you know, one, one thing I sometimes put it down to is, you know, the strange lights mm. and being stuck at home during, you know, parts of the year. We've, we've all sort of had that experience of being stuck at home mm. this year, you know, whether we live in Denmark or Sweden or Australia or the US. Uh, we've all had to quarantine at some stage or another, you know, to some degree. Would you agree or do you think that we might have this sort of creative explosion of people just having more time to, to think during this circuit breaker year? That's a good question. Um, I think you're right in that one of the really primary experiences most people have had is this sudden forced inner self-reflection. You're kind of forced to stay within your confines of self. Um, we, we're a generation, I think, of people who've really been accustomed to moving about at our leisure and our whenever. Um, I remember asking my dad, who was Australian, coming to Scandinavia and, and, and was very lucky to be in Denmark and t learning architecture at a period that was incredibly creative. His teacher was Paul Kerholm, the furniture designer. So a lot of discussions around design. And when I was in, in, uh, at art school, I, one of the questions I had was like, how, how is it that these chairs are so good? Why are the Danes and the Scandinavians so good at design? And he said, if you think about you're sitting inside a house for six months with a nutcracker in your hand, breaking nuts open in the dark, you're going to think about how that sits in your hand and how it works with that breaking. And that can be a glass or a candle you start thinking about how does this candle actually work best? Is it throwing light around the room the way it does it that I want it to do? Does it create an ambience? How does it reflect the light around it? How does it absorb light? All of those questions are from an element of self-reflection. And I think one of the beautiful aspects of Scandinavian living that I miss as well is that the emergence of spring is really the point where the conversations that you've had with yourself while others through that very dark winter, that is the point where you release all of that and you're suddenly in the open again. And the two feed each other. One is a contemplative, one is an acting out. And I think we may, if we're lucky, COVID will produce something at the end where this reflection eventuates into some kind of output. Yeah, certainly we... I think we all hope that we've been part of the contemplative cycle and mm. hopefully that now is maybe the early, you know, parts of spring and, and the green shoots of, yes. of an emergence of something new. Yes. Thank you so much for, for spending time with us on the second Renaissance. It's been great to have you on the show and talk about art, creativity and, and your own story through life. Look forward to many new chapters as well. Yeah, thank you, Anders. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Cool. Thank you.
Thank you for tuning in to the second episode of the Second Renaissance, this deep and meaningful with Mika Utson Popov and his reflections on creativity. If you have liked this episode of the show, I would love you to give it a thumbs up and follow it on your major podcatchers. And please do tell your creative networks and those that need to hear about the emergence of human creativity in this pandemic and beyond. Please share it with them. In our next episode of the Second Renaissance, I interview Christian Vestalind Wickstrom, the CEO of Maneuver, a disruptor and challenger in the fintech space, and his view on how creativity as part of the cultural DNA of the organization is helping them shape a better future of automated payments. Isn't that a wonderful world where our payments and our money flows freely and, of course, helped by our artificial intelligence. Look forward to seeing you next time on The Second Renaissance.